0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me if you would. Uh, let's go ahead and start with Daniel 12, where we left off a week ago. I appreciate Lewis uh, filling in for me on Wednesday night, and uh, he'll be doing the same thing again this upcoming Wednesday night, so I appreciate that. Giving me a couple of weeks to take care of some family matters, or not, <laughs> whatever the Lord wants to do on that. Um, but we are uh, in a Philippians study from Philippians chapter three, where Paul speaks of uh, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. When he talks about pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, and so it's important for us to ask, well, what is this prize? What, uh, what, are, what is the prize, singular, and what are the prizes, plural, that we might be eligible for in terms of crowns and rewards and other things? Are we going to rule cities? Is there a verse that talks about ruling cities, and does that apply to us? And I think it's useful, so I started a doctrinal study on the prize, and uh, we got a, a good jump on it a week ago, and I want to build on it here this morning. Um, but one of the biggest things I want to do is make sure that we look at this study dispensationally. So that we don't confuse church prizes with Israel's prizes or Gentile prizes or any other kind of prizes that are there. And so you'll notice, as far as we've already covered uh, Gentiles and, and Israel uh, that uh, we don't want to confuse our, our prizes. And when Jesus is preaching in the Gospels and he talks about these things, in fact, he talks about cities, he's not talking to the church. Jesus was preaching before Pentecost before Acts 2, all right? He's talking to Jewish audience, talking to Israel. When he talks about the sons of the kingdom, when he talks about many that come from the east and the west, we're going to see those passages this morning. He's talking about Gentiles and how Gentiles are going to be blessed with uh, with prizes, with rewards, with uh, an invitation to a feast, for example, that many Jews are going to be excluded from, see? And The reason why i want to be cautious with this is because i think a a lot of harm has been done and in fact some books many books have been written on this that i think have missed the mark and it's sad because they're taking promises to israel and they're trying to abscond with them for the church and we have no business doing that and uh, we're going to reject replacement theology both in time and in eternity and the saddest part is is i can name good pastors and good authors that, that, have, that would, not, they would argue tooth and nail against replacement theology. But then they go and they have a replacement uh, uh, re, uh, mythology in, in claiming Israel's rewards for ourselves. And we have no business with Israel's rewards. And so that's what I want to cover here this morning. So let's uh, start with Daniel chapter 12 where we left off a week ago. And this is uh, the promise here to Daniel. Go your way, Daniel. This is the last verse of the book. but as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. This is the reward Daniel had to look forward to. And I imagine it's a considerable reward because he was a tremendous hero in, uh, in the Old Testament. But that's his reward in the Jewish stewardship. That's not our reward. We want to be clear on these things, okay? So let's uh, take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's uh, pause for a moment to fix our bearings, make sure we're in fellowship, and humble ourselves for the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth. Father, thankful for the grace provision that allows us to be here today. We do pray for folks that would like to be here, but they're in uh, some physical infirmities of sickness, and you're well aware of that, Father. You are Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. And so we ask that you be with them, restore them to health in your timetable, and uh, allow them to come to us at the next available opportunity. Father, And in the meantime, we thank you that we have the website, we have MP3s, we have the capacity with technology today, to stay current with the teaching, even if uh, even if we have to miss a class here or there. So Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, bless our time now this morning as we uh, study to show ourselves approved. We're workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so we used uh, Roman number one as our introduction, basically coming out of Philippians 3.14, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus and this is specific to the church age this is a church age statement it is not true for the old testament not true for gentiles or jews the upward call of god in christ jesus is descriptive of the dispensation of the church Uh, israel had a call the jews had a call the gentiles had a call but it was not the upward call in christ jesus None of those previous calls prior to the church featured a victorious Savior seated at the right hand of of God the Father. None of those previous calls featured uh, the advocate, the helper having been sent from the Father and from the Son. It is only the church age that has the Holy Spirit having been sent that baptizes us into union with Jesus Christ. And so the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is descriptive of the church. Also, we're a dispensation with a finish line Uh, The starting, uh, uh, if you want to think of it as the starting uh, pistol that that launches the race, that was Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended and uh, the, the church age began with the descent of the Holy Spirit. The church age will conclude with the rapture of the church. That's the finish line for the dispensation of the church. And so really when you're looking at Philippians 3, I think you can include verse 14 as a rapture reference, like we include verse 11 as a rapture reference, like we include verse 21 as a rapture reference. I think there are three separate rapture inferences that can be drawn out of Philippians chapter 3 um, as far as that goes. All right, so this can be thought of as the prize singular. The rapture event itself is the prize singular. Uh, Whereas the multiplied prizes follow, of course, the judgment seat of Christ, when the gold, silver, and precious stones are purified, when the wood, hay, and stubble is utterly consumed. Understand, of course, that every race has one winner, yet every believer does run a personal race. So we can all be winners. We all should be winners. We all should be overcomers because positionally we are in Christ, and then experientially we are, as we fix our eyes on Christ and run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so that's the, uh, the application there. Uh, some people were asking about, well, what about 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 24, that only one receives the prize? Uh, why should we all be reaching forward towards the prize if only one gets it? Well, okay, uh, I hear you. I get you on that. That is a passage. However, there are other passages as well that speak of uh, multiple prizes that speak of each one of us running our own personal race. And ultimately, the overcomer is Christ anyway, so he ran with endurance his race, he has his prize, and we're in him. So there you go. But we do run a personal race, so we do press on to our particular crowns, and which uh, for us is not the great white throne, for us it's the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, that's our post-mortem life course evaluation. Israel does not stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Unbelievers do not stand at the judgment seat of Christ. They have different judgments. Uh, The unbeliever stands at the great white throne in Revelation 20. Israel stands at the resurrection of life judgment in the early part of Revelation chapter 20, verses 4, 5, and 6 there. Different uh, judgment seats for different dispensations. All right, when we moved on into the development of Roman numeral 2 then, we proceeded... uh, age by age through the dispensations, including the angels. They have rewards as well and were the judges for them, by the way. The Gentiles, they had promised rewards. When you read through Hebrews 11, you can see from uh, Abel to Noah that uh, reward was mentioned there and uh, that they operated by faith. Job specifically it has two chapters chapter 14 and chapter 19 where not only does he speak of resurrection but he speaks of reward and uh, he's looking forward to that he said i know that my redeemer lives and we appreciate the uh, the passages there where we left off was dealing with the jewish dispensation so in roman numeral two this is now main point three in the jewish dispensation what were their rewards well we looked at the example of abraham Abraham was looking to the, for the city which has foundations. And that's remarkable, too, because most of the uh, references to Israel's blessings, land, seed, and blessing are all centered on earth, and yet he was looking for a heavenly city. It's as it, it is consistent with what we understand for God building the city in heaven and then lowering it to the earth, which is uh, what we see when we get to uh, the millennium and the, after the millennium when the heavenly Jerusalem does, in fact, descend. Uh, Moses was looking to the reward. This allowed him to reject the treasures of Egypt, uh, as it says in Hebrews 11, that uh, he was looking for the reward, that he regarded identification with the people of Christ the uh, more significant than the riches of uh, the passing pleasures of sin and the, uh, the wealth of Egypt. Even though he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he probably could have become Pharaoh himself had he uh, strived for that. And yet, He recognized that he was Jewish, that he was part of God's chosen people and he chose rather to identify with the people of God. And that's a powerful pattern for you and me that we uh, likewise must identify with with us, with the body of Christ rather than enjoy the the provision that the world would have. David wrote several Psalms looking to the reward. and We looked at those. Daniel where we left off and where I asked you to turn this morning here in Daniel 12. Daniel was promised an allotted portion at the end of the age. And the language itself is significant because remember Israel was a covenant nation and Israel was very much a part of their covenant was very much concerned with the inheritance with the tribal land grants and with the allotments and to make sure that they were divided properly amongst the tribes and then within the tribes amongst the clans and within the clans amongst the families. And so you have land that gets apportioned uh, Uh, on that basis. And then here's Daniel and his promise in verse 13. As for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion. And that allotted portion is significant because God's the one who does the allotting. We discussed this um, with respect to shepherding in local churches. Uh, Jesus Christ is the one who does the allotting when he allots sheep to to, uh, shepherds. When he allots particular believers to particular local churches, that is the allotment in first peter five three that is spoken of there Jesus Christ allots sheep to the shepherds he 's designed them for, and so the allotments are uh, are a remarkable study, both in time and in eternity okay and this is where it gets uh, kind of curious to me. I wonder how does this work you know because when you 're going through the process of time. And in generations, as generations pass, so a, a father can pass that land to his children and he dies and now it becomes their land. Well, what about the resurrection then? When all of a sudden dad's alive again and grandpa's alive again and great-grandpa's alive again. And we got all these generations that theoretically have a claim to the same plot of land within the same land grant of, of the tribes and clans and families and so forth. That's going to be uh, an interesting thing. And I don't have the answers to that. The Bible doesn't really talk about that so much. Uh, all I can expect is that God is smart enough to figure out uh, what He's doing there in terms of that. So we have uh, enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Now, one thing is clear is that when we're looking at Gentile um, uh, resurrection and rewards, it is on the earth. Uh, Jer- uh, Job made that clear, that he was going to stand on the earth that, uh, when he received his reward. Likewise, Israel, they're going to resur- be resurrected, they're going to stand on this earth. Their rewards are earthly. Our rewards are not earthly. Our inheritance is heavenly. Our residence is heavenly. That the, the church has a different destiny than Jews or Gentiles. Understand that. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. That the Father had a plan, an eternal plan for every Jewish nation, or for the Jewish nation, every Gentile nation, all of their eternal rewards, all of that charted out. But the church is something new. And when he said, are many dwelling places presently, not so for the church. I go to prepare a place for you. The eternal destiny for the church had not yet been prepared when Jesus delivered that message. And so that has to be something different as well. So speaking of Jesus, this is now what wraps up our, our uh, study of the Jewish dispensation. Okay? Don't be confused by the fact that we've flipped pages now from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that we're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so somehow now we're in the New Testament. Yes, we're in the New Testament, but we're not yet in the church. The church does not begin until Acts chapter 2. So even though we are in the New Testament, and we have gone past 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we're part now of the Greek canon, it was written in Greek, not in Hebrew, nevertheless, as Jesus is speaking, we are uh, still talking about Israel and their stewardship. So Matthew chapter 8, as we turn there, remember Jesus uh, as a prophet was a Jewish prophet to the Jewish people. Matthew chapter 8. So Jesus delivered many kingdom of heaven messages featuring mostly Jewish, some Gentile, and possibly, some would say, possibly even church rewards. Okay? And I'm going to dispute that. I'm going to say any church rewards that Jesus speaks of are going to be apostolic church rewards, and even that I'm going to quibble with. Okay? And you'll see what I mean by the time we look at Matthew 8, Matthew 19, and Luke 19. Because I don't believe Jesus spoke of any church rewards, okay? The church was a mystery as Jesus was, was uh, ministering. And other than the upper room discourse in John 13 through 17, Jesus did not reference the church, okay? It was mystery still, uh, unrevealed to the Old Testament prophets. So, Jesus delivered many kingdom of heaven messages featuring mostly Jewish, some Gentile, possibly even, apostolic church rewards. And we start with Matthew chapter 8. So, context on this. He's talking to a Gentile. There is a centurion here in this chapter. And um, in verse 5, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to Him, imploring Him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented, wherever home was, okay, for this centurion and you know he probably had multiple homes because he had his deployed home and he had his home back in rome and wherever else um text doesn't say how far away the distance is uh and so jesus said to him i will come and heal him but the centurion said lord i'm not worthy for you to come under my roof but just say the word and my servant will be healed and so i suspect based on this that he's talking about a local home or someplace that he has nearby in country on his uh on his uh, uh, Syrian deployment. Remember, the the land of Israel was considered part of the Syrian province uh, uh, under the Roman organization. Uh, But I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority. And he starts here in military terms to describe the chain of command, and it's beautiful. I also am a man under authority. And so he's creating an analogy between himself and jesus which actually betrays a remarkable understanding of who jesus is because this centurion recognizes that jesus is a man under authority that jesus has been sent from the father that jesus is here to deliver the message that the father has for him to deliver to do the works the father's given him to do to accomplish the father's purpose So, when he says, I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my slave, do this and he does this. And so, the recognition that physically traveling there and seeing it with his own eyes and doing it there, it's not necessary to do that. That through the chain of command, you can issue orders. And the Romans were marvelous at uh, their administration and with communication with the roads. The way that Caesar could give a command in, in Rome and it could spread out through the legions and, and Caesar could you know, could accomplish things in the far-flung regions of, of the Roman Empire just through his delegated agents on that basis. See? Anyway, it's a remarkable testimony of faith. And so uh, he recognizes that Jesus can, can give the word right here and divine power will be applied uh, wherever the, the slave is. Now when Jesus heard this he marveled and he said to those who were following you want to do a word study sometime do a, a marveled word study and have some fun with that um truly I say to you I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel He has a he he is he is impressed he is marveling at what he just heard He is he is thrilled this is what true biblical fellowship really is It's when a believer communicates doctrine to another believer, and that other believer appreciates that doctrine and is just uh, blessed by the edification that happens when one believer communicates doctrine to another believer. So Jesus marvels, and he's blessed by what that man had to say. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. You would think that tremendous faith would be among the Jewish people, having been taught the Jewish scriptures being the stewards of God's plan and program for 2,000 years since Abraham. But no, here comes a Gentile, a Roman, with a faith capacity that exceeds anything that Jesus had yet met. So I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now this this reclining. That's that's fun too because this is um, this is another this is specifically a Roman process. This is how the Romans would eat. Okay. Jews wouldn't eat like this, Greeks wouldn't eat like this, you know. Uh, we we wouldn't eat like this. We prefer to be seated on a chair at a table more upright than not. But Romans would recline and they would recline and they would uh and, and even three on a side of each table, and we'd discuss this with John uh, reclining on Jesus' breast, for example, as they were having that meal. And uh, the nature of it, as you're laying there on your side and the, the food is at a table at your head and you just reach up and you eat and you dip and, and so forth. Anyway, it's a very Roman thing to say, you will recline, and they put the words at the table in there so that we understand what they're talking about. You will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so this is a reward. This is a prize, Okay this is a prize in the kingdom of heaven this is an eschatological prize and as the kingdom of heaven is taught in the gospels it's the idea of your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven it is a coming kingdom and it's a coming kingdom that is at hand for about half of the lord's ministry and then when the nation rejects him he stops with the at-hand messages he very clearly ends the at-hand messages And because now he begins to prepare his disciples to go to the cross, that the kingdom is no longer at hand when they reject their king. And so the kingdom is delayed. And we we understand that. We're now in between 1st Advent and 2nd Advent. The kingdom is still coming, it's just delayed because of the rejection of their king. And so we have an eschatological reward. We have a resurrection reward, that, that reclining at the table, to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a crown. This is a prize. Now, it's primarily a Jewish prize as we understand it. Uh, However, what Jesus is saying here is there are going to be some Jews excluded and there will be some Gentiles whose faith is so marvelous that they are granted privileges of dining with the Jewish patriarchs, that they get to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What a thrill, see? Now, I can't imagine, you know, if you understand how the nations are organized. I might imagine, you know, America would be, uh, you know, the equivalent of this would be. Could you imagine the resurrection, a dinner party, and we get to dine with, with Washington, Adams, and Jefferson, okay? You know, just think about that as, as our first three presidents or or something on that nature, okay? And then what a thrill would it be to to sit down and dine with Washington, Adams, and, and Jefferson. I, I I'd enjoy that. That'd be great. Uh, but I can't imagine that, you know, a Canadian would be too interested in that, or a Mexican, or, you know, a Ukrainian, or a Filipino. They 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 maybe wouldn't be so thrilled. And why would a Gentile be thrilled to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? Not being Jewish, but you see, it's more than just a patriotic, uh, racial, national issue when it comes to the, the faith of the Word of God, I can, I can readily see why Old Testament Gentiles would be thrilled to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, because they would recognize their role as, a, as the covenant nation and their role as the stewards and their role as the, as the patriarchs of the Jewish people. And it's the Jewish scriptures that show the, this Roman how to get saved. This Roman's a believer. This centurion is in heaven today. And so dining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to be a big thrill for him. So many will come from the east and the west and will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, that is many of the sons of the kingdom, will be cast out into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so being racially Jewish will be insufficient. That simply being a a racially Jewish person is insufficient. If you're not saved, if you're not born again, no Jewish person is going to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so sons of the kingdom there. Let's recognize that is a term for Jewish believers in the Old Testament in contrast to Gentile believers in the Old Testament that are coming from the East and the West. It has no bearing on the church. And if you're reading a book, and that book is telling you that church-age saints are sons of the kingdom. Um, you're reading a book that has issues. I'm just telling you now, okay? And let's understand this. It's the same thing. And blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're not invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We are the bride of Christ. We're not receiving invitations. We're issuing the invitations, all right? You know, does a bride sit around hoping to get invited to her own wedding? How dumb is that, okay? You know that. You're, you've got a wedding coming up. The bride sends out the the invitations. And she's not sweating whether she's getting invited or not, okay? We are the bride of Christ. And that passage about blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, powerful text, does not apply to the church, okay? Neither does this. We are not sons of the kingdom. Israel is in the contrast with Gentiles here, and that's the application there. Also, the outer darkness in that place, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, that is, uh, that is a hell reference. There are some authors that say, oh, no, no, it's not hell. It's just, uh, it's just outside of a feasting garden on the millennial earth, okay? And I appreciate that, and I've read that, and I disagree with the conclusions they have come to. All right. So Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. All right. So that's the text there. Over to Matthew 19. Over to Matthew 19. 28 through thirty. Now, this is the one that uh, I think also we want to be cautious with. So we got uh, blessing the children, we got the rich young ruler, of course, the divorce stuff earlier in the chapter. But then you get to um, Peter. Peter said to him in verse 27, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And... Uh, course, that's kind of a follow-up to the rich young ruler and treasure in heaven and things that were there. But nevertheless, you might expect that Peter was in a bit of a downer. (laughs) He was uh, doing the pity party routine about whatever he thinks he's lost. And um, so Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon the 12 thrones, judging The 12 tribes of Israel. Now, yes, he's speaking to Peter and he's speaking to the 12. And that number 12 is significant, okay? Uh, You who have followed me, that is, when was Jesus ministering? First century, before Pentecost, in the dispensation of Israel? The 12 apostles of the Lamb, they were apostles before the church age even had apostles. They were apostles before the, the church age even was the church age. They were Old Testament apostles before they became New Testament apostles in Acts chapter 2. Okay, Now there were other apostles later, Barnabas, Paul, the brothers of Christ, some others that were called apostles, church age apostles, by gift and office in the church. But when it comes to the apostles of the Lamb, there's only 12 specifically 12. And when Matthias dies before Pentecost, I mean, I'm sorry, Judas Iscariot hangs himself. He wasn't ever saved anyway. Um, So when Judas Iscariot needed to be replaced, they appointed Matthias in Acts chapter 1 before Pentecost. They made sure that there were 12 apostles of the Lamb before Pentecost. That's huge. Okay? And then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. The church age begins And we have the 12 apostles of the Lamb that now continue on as church-age apostles, plus new apostles get added. It's curious to me when you get to Acts chapter 12 and James is uh, put to the sword. Remember James and John, the sons of thunder? James is put to the sword in Acts chapter 12, and he's not replaced. There's not another Matthias candidate. They don't go back, cast lots again, and say, ooh, you you know, we picked Matthias over... Judas, Barsabbas, and Acts went, let's see if he's still available. We can make him now the next... They didn't replace James in chapter 12. It was not necessary to replace James like they had to replace Judas because it was required to have 12 apostles of the Lamb. These apostles, by the way, their names are written on the foundation stones of the the New Jerusalem when the New Jerusalem descends. 12 stones, 12 um, apostles of the Lamb. And so... "...you who have followed Me in the regeneration when the Son of Man uh, will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." This appears to be localized to an Israel application, see? Not judging the angels, not judging the world, not judging the all things that, uh, that Christ judges as head of the church. This is simply a judgment function towards Israel. And so, My conclusion is, is that these apostles, yes, they're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and they will receive church age rewards like you and I will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and receive church age rewards. But they also uh, are eligible for some rewards based upon the fruit that they bore prior to the church, that they actually were fruit bearing members of Israel stewardship before they crossed over into the church does that make sense and so none of us today are eligible for that because we weren't around back then we're not old enough to have borne fruit uh in the you know pre-pentecost fruit uh, am i right everybody here was saved after pentecost all right of course i mean this has been nearly 2000 years now there's nobody left that was alive to bear fruit before pentecost But those believers, you know, is God so unfair as to, or unjust as to forget their labors? And that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. God is not unjust to remember what you used to do and what you continue to do. See, they were crossovers. They were priests back before Pentecost. Now they're outcast Christians in uh, being encouraged in the book of Hebrews, okay? Those guys also, they're going to have church rewards for what they've done in the body of Christ, I believe they're going to have Israel rewards for what they did pre-Pentecost, as far as that goes. All right. So um, no worries here. Uh, Still as a principle, though, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake. Let's recognize that. If you are a follower of Christ, if you're taking up your cross and following Him, then that means there is likely division means likely there's things you've suffered loss. Well, rejoice, because you will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So let's understand what these things are dealing with. Okay? Whatever it is that you've lost for the name of Christ, truly lost. Okay? We're not talking about some phony ad campaign where you you lost it all. No. Okay? I'm not going there. Because I'm I don't know what, anyway, don't get me going. Some people haven't lost what they think they have lost, okay? Anyway. (laughs) I don't even follow the NFL anymore. What am I even saying? I mean, I used to be a Seahawk fan. I used to be, you know, a big uh, uh, Russell Wilson fan. I thought Russell was marvelous. Had a Christian testimony and kind of neat. And he was a rookie the same year that Kaepernick was a ro- rookie in different things, but I don't follow that anymore, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. <laughs> when you lose something for real and you lose something by naming the name of Christ and it costs you something, that's pretty rare in our culture. Our nation is too fat, numb, and happy. We're very blessed. We're very protected. It's not like we're in Cameroon and, 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 and getting shot, okay? But when you have lost houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake well god keeps track of that and your reward is great and many who are first will be last and last first understand that so the angels were the first of the first what are they going to be in eternity the last of the last they're going to be the servants they were the first stewardship they're the mightiest beings god's ever created in this physical universe and yet they're the servants for all eternity and then the Gentiles, and then Israel, and then the bride. We're the last to come across the scene, and we're the bride of Christ. We are fellow heirs with the heir of all things. We are the first until we get to the fullness of time and the new earth. That's a different study, okay? Anyway, there's, uh, there's blessings there. Imagine a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ, a thousand generations with no more sin, no more death. How fun is that going to be? All right, Luke nineteen. <laughs> Remember when Christopher was uh, little? He was four, and he would love to quote that the last shall be first. He was—he felt that was his entitlement to be the first everywhere, you know, everywhere we went because he had an older brother and older sister, and he was the last. This was before Zoe came along. So as long as he was the last, he felt entitled to be the first child uh, to eat, the first child to walk in a door, the first child to open his Christmas presents, the first, everything. I mean, he just found applications everywhere for the last shall be first. Short kid. All right. Luke 19 now. Um, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And, uh, okay, well, that's an assumption, because, you know, John the Baptist said it was at hand, and Jesus, for a while, said it's at hand. Uh, He's stopped saying it's at hand for some time now, but they're still under this assumption that it's going to appear immediately. So he said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And so right there... Right off the bat in this parable, we realize this is going to take some time. <laughs> he went somewhere distant, he's going to receive a kingdom and bring it with him when he comes back okay, and we of course understand you know two thousand years of church age history and things that that israel's kingdom is at, is on hold until the church is complete, and then he can come back, so we called ten of his slaves and put uh, gave them ten. Manas and uh, said to them do business with this until i come back and each of them received uh one okay ten servants one manah apiece this is different than uh, another message uh but he, and, and so there are some reward passages where we're given different amounts right one talent five talents ten talents um this everyone's given the same everyone everybody's given the same so do business with this until I come back. Business is good. Be productive. But his uh, citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him that he might know what business they had done. And so the first appeared saying, master, your manah has made 10 manas more. Wow. Wow. That's a productive return. That's a hardworking, industrious capitalist right there, <laughs> okay? And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in very little thing. You are to be in authority over 10 cities. And this is where we have the expression cities. And this is where people get all excited about cities and whatever. Not a church age text, okay? Not a church age text. We are a heavenly people. We, are, we reign with Christ. These are earthly cities. This is not our reward, okay? And the second came saying, your manah master has made five manas. Again, very industrious, very capitalistic, not quite as successful as the other guy, but so he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. And another came saying, master, here is your manah, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. In other words, he didn't do anything with it. He didn't put it to work. He didn't put it to use. He didn't invest it. He didn't work it he was a lazy slug and uh, and and so think about it and when you think about this as opposed to the other parable where there's differences uh this is the parable where everybody is given the same thing up front so think of this in terms of salvation we're all getting we all have the same salvation up front we all have eternal life we've all been born again what are we doing in our salvation status what are we doing on the equal footing of being provided the same thing up front okay different from the other parable where where he's entrusted with different amounts so um i was afraid i put it away in a handkerchief for i was afraid of you because i just started wondering what's the greek word for handkerchief but okay (laughs) i don't know that i've ever read that all right (laughs) i was afraid of you because you're an exacting man you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. Now here's a complaint, and I think this is a complaint on the part of labor against management. This is uh, betraying the fact that they are uh, dissatisfied with the master. They, they have fear. There's an adversarial relationship. They don't like him. He's exacting. What does that mean? Well, he has standards and I don't measure up, so uh, I'm going to blame him and his standards. <laughs> Um, and uh, that you take up what you did not lay down. That's dissatisfaction right there. That's labor complaining that we're doing all the work, why should he take the profit? Well, wait a minute. Yes, he is taking up what he did not lay down. Yes, he didn't do the work because he paid you to do the work. So quit groaning about it. You got paid to do it. It's not your Farm, it's not your industry, it's not your factory, it's not your wasn't even your manah. He gave you the manah to start with. He's the one that invested it, put up the capital, and is taking the risk. And clearly uh his risk paid off for the first two guys, but with this knucklehead, the risk uh risk didn't pay off at all. It was a bad risk, a bad investment. He he entrusted a mana, and you know he's getting this manah back. What's that? There's no gain, there's no return. So, um, you take up what you did not lay down, you reap what you did not sow. Yes, he did. He did lay it down. He did sow. He sowed through them. He hired them to do it. Okay? He didn't have to. He could have kept his money and done whatever else, could have consumed it, could have done whatever, but he invested it. So he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. I mean, at the very least, you could have done that. If you're not going to do business, if you're not going to be productive, then at least, you know, what's this handkerchief thing? Put it in the bank. Get some interest when I come back. So he said to the bystanders, take the manah away from him and give it to the one who has ten manas. And they said to him, Master, he has 10 manas already. So wait a minute. You know what that verse just says right there? It says disparity of outcome is not a problem. It says uh, inequality of wealth is not a problem. He's not upset that this guy has 10 and this guy has one and this guy has five. And there seems to be a broad spectrum of these guys have a lot and these guys don't have a lot. They were all given the same thing up front. So equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. Because he's going to take it away from the one who has one and give it to the one who has 10. So guess what? That guy's now got 11. Of course. Of course he's going to be given more. He's the most productive guy this guy's got. He's the best productive servant this guy has got. The return is going to be so much better with that guy as opposed to this guy. All right. Now, Obviously the taking away the manna, we don't want to necessarily then that becomes a problem in our metaphor then if we say, well if that represents salvation you see the problem? Because he just had it taken away. So nobody loses salvation. I would say then rather than represent salvation, the one manna represents humanity with volitional capacity. Volitional capacity to accept the gospel, volitional capacity to reject the gospel. We're all in the image of God as far as that goes. So our image of God, human capacity, could be thought of as the metaphor in terms of the manah that every human being is given. Okay? Anyway. So uh, they said, Master, he has 10 manas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Ooh, that's harsh. (laughs) What a hater. You know, when we get accused of hate crimes, we get accused of all this other stuff. Just remember, wait a minute. Okay? Jesus is the one that uh, flipped over tables and drove out the money changers and made a whip of cords and did all this stuff. When he comes to reign and he separates the sheep from the goats and the sheep get to enter into the millennial kingdom, what happens to the goats? He kills them. It is a mass execution. Every unbeliever on the planet is sent to hell so that Jesus can begin the millennial kingdom with a 100% saved population. Does that sound harsh? It is harsh. Absolutely harsh. But sin is harsh. God gave His Son to pay the penalty of sin. All right. In any event, uh, clearly I think we can identify this as a Jewish context. We can identify this uh, in this aspect and ruling over five cities or ten cities or anything like that. Um, I recognize, you know, why church-age pastors would like to preach on this and illustrate on this. Uh, Some have spoken about, you know, what cities they want to get, you know, uh, you know. I don't know. I, that, to me, that's a bit presumptuous in, in terms of like James and John trying to score a seating at the table, things like that. You know, like, well, am I going to put in for, what am I going to put in for? Am I going to put in for Austin? You know, I I don't want Austin. What am I going to put in for uh, Seattle? Yes, sir. Chicago. Chicago. You want Chicago? <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, actually. That... <laughs> Come talk to me after class. There's... <laughs> Chicago has issues. Oh, okay. Well, then there you go. All right. But understand, because these messages Jesus is giving, okay, now we can make application, but it's got to be a secondary application for the church. And when it comes right down to it, our blessings are so much greater than anything that was ever promised to Israel anyway. Because we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are the queen that Psalm 45 speaks of. And we are decked out and we are with our Savior. I believe when Scripture says, thus we shall always be with the Lord, that that means we shall always be with the Lord. Okay? And so that's our position. That's our estate. That's our blessing for the millennial kingdom and for the the thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth. We are with the Lord. That's our position. So... Um, these other things, uh, we leave them to resurrected Jews and Gentiles in uh, in their um, eternal reward context. Now for the church. The fourth thing that we look at in terms of the church. <clears throat> and by the way, I don't have questions. Okay, I was going to say you could ask questions on this on Wednesday night, but Lewis is covering for me again on Wednesday night, so it'll have to be a week from Wednesday if you really want to get into it. Um, But are you familiar with Joseph Dillo, Jody Dillo, Reign of the Servant Kings, or some of those? Okay. I loved that when I first read it. I loved it less the second time. By the third time, I was really having struggles. And now there's a new updated edition. It's called Final Destiny. It's 1,500 pages. That thing is so thick, you can kill cockroaches with it. It's just a monster book, okay? Probably even small mice. You could really do damage with that book. Um, and I will read it. I will read it because I want to be fair to uh, to what he's done. And I love GES. I love their Grace Gospel. I love their faithalone.org website. Um, but the, uh, the bl- blending of Israel with the church, the claiming of gospel passages for the church, the placement of the bride in the outer darkness, I cannot teach that. I believe that violates so many uh, other passages of Scripture. So when I harmonize these things and make every passage true, uh, I cannot go to the conclusion that Dillo went to. So I don't put the the church in the outer darkness, the the church losers in the outer darkness, okay? There are winners and losers, don't get me wrong. There are church-age winners and church-age losers, and yes, there is a spectrum. And there is the greatest rewarded church-age saint, and there's the biggest loser church-age loser. But the biggest loser, church-age loser, is still greater than any Old Testament saint, positionally in Christ. And the whole bride of Christ gets raptured, and the whole bride of Christ is with the Lord. Okay? And that's, uh, that's an issue. So we'll see it here. Anyway, I do recommend Dilla, but I recommend reading with discernment. All right. The body and bride of Jesus Christ, positionally, experientially, collectively, corporately, suffers with Jesus Christ and is destined to reign with Him. Understand this, and I think it goes a long way, and then we can proceed through points 2 and 3 and see the, uh, the crowns accordingly. But we've got to start here. The body and bride of Jesus Christ. This is the church, the church universal. Every believer from Pentecost to rapture, 2,000 years so far, Most of the bride, by the way, is in heaven right now. It's only the last living generation that's still earthly. Most of the bride is already, you know, my mother and so many others that are already there in heaven. It's only the presently living generation waiting to hear the trumpet. The body and bride of Jesus Christ positionally, experientially, collectively slash corporately suffers with Jesus Christ and is destined to reign with Him. And if I wanted to, I could have repeated that whole phrase, is positionally, experientially, collectively, corporately destined to reign with Him. In other words, everybody. The bride reigns with Christ. It's connected to some ifs, but the ifs are true. And the ifs, to be fair to the ifs, we have to understand them positionally, corporately, collectively and we're not going to exclude individuals. So, Romans 8:16 8, through 18, 2 Timothy 2:11 2, through 13. We want to be clear on these things to understand the body and bride of Christ, positionally, experientially, collectively, corporately suffers with Jesus. Romans 8. And this removes much of the Conditional aspects; it removes much of the uh, spectrum. We'll get to that. There is a spectrum, and even within the positional inheritance, there is a broad spectrum of of conditional rewards. Not denying that. Teaching both is true. All right, Romans eight. Starts with no condemnation in verse 1 and ends with no separation, which uh, is marvelous, the way to end the chapter with what shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so when you talk about verses 35 through 39, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus, right? And so from no condemnation in verse 1 to no separation at the end, we've got this uh, intense chapter that speaks of the body and bride of Jesus Christ and what is our positional estate in him okay, so within this then verse um the fact that we are sons, we have this uh, new uh, we have the Holy Spirit dwells within us because we're believers in the church age, verse fourteen says all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. This is unique to the church age. Jews didn't have this in their stewardship. Gentiles didn't have this in their stewardship. We receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation. And so that resonates, that communicates, testifies with our living human spirit. That we are God's children. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. That's a great inheritance, isn't it? I mean, if, if he's the heir of all things, I want to be a fellow heir with him. See? Fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. And then it says, If indeed we suffer with him so that Consequence and result, we may also be glorified with Him. Now, don't take this as a third class. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. This is a first class. We will. In fact, we definitely will. Because not only is it an if, it is an if indeed. Since indeed, since in fact, we, children, heirs, spirit indwelled believers of the New Testament, we do suffer with Him purpose clause, so that we may also be glorified with Him. It is a positional reality. So, is there a spectrum? Do some believers suffer more? Do some believers suffer less? Okay. Does the entire bride suffer positionally? Now let's just say, okay, there is a spectrum. Boy, there's church age, you know, man. This guy is suffering a whole lot more than I'm suffering you know a pastor in cameroon and his son got shot you know um it's not happening here but remember what happens here when one member suffers who suffers everybody suffers so that spectrum we're talking about we got we can't ignore the fact that that spectrum it is what it is but it's also a corporate reality that we all suffer. And when one member is honored, we're all honored. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice because we are a corporate body in Christ. There is a unity to the body and bride of Jesus Christ. So if in fact, since in fact, we do so that we do. Um, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to some of us, the glory that has been revealed to the Metacoi overcomers, all of us, revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Is that just the winners, the overcomers, the Metacoi victors? That's all of us. the body and bride of Jesus Christ. All right. that's Romans. How about Second Timothy? The mystery of godliness. Can we earn it? Can we deserve it? Hmm. All right, right. Second Timothy 2, verse 8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of god is not imprisoned for this reason i endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in christ jesus and with it eternal glory here's the body of christ the elect it is a trustworthy statement if we died with him we will also live with him is this a maybe maybe we will maybe we won't this is first class we're all in this position we've all if we're all saved we've all died in him We will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Assumed to be true. If we deny him, he also will deny us. We talk about the loss of rewards for those that deny him, but not loss of salvation. Because if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. And so if I'm going to take the loser Christian from the church age and put him in outer darkness and make him miss the millennial banquet, he's denying himself. Because that church-age loser is still in Christ. That that church-age loser, I don't care. The worst loser, uh, and I'm trying to think of a loser, but, you know, um, I've known some, you know, uh, Demas, okay, he abandoned Paul, he left, he loved this present age, and he went to Thessalonica. Let's just say... I'd like to believe that later he repented, and, 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 but we don't know. Okay, Let's just say he didn't. <laughs> but whoever, the, the biggest loser is in the church age that says it's all burned by fire, it's all wood, hay, stubble, they themselves are saved, yet so is through fire. They've got a resurrection body and nothing else that survives the judgment seat. They're still bride of Christ. They're still in Christ. How can Christ deny himself? He cannot deny himself. And so we understand this as a positional blessing. We'll come back uh one week from today since I'm off this Wednesday as well. Again, appreciate the time away um, going Sunday to Sunday, I feel like a backsliding Baptist or some kind of a i don't know I'm not going to get into this as a habit. can't imagine, but uh last week and this week though it's been uh, it's been a good break, and I appreciate Lewis covering my Wednesday nights. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these rewards. Open our eyes. Help us see these things for what they are. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.